दी है everyone and welcome to another episode of Cutthroat's Cast, across the airways podcast dedicated to discussing episodes of HBO's Emmy Award winning series and maybe possibly two-time Emmy Award winning series, Game of Thrones. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, otherwise known as the king of this podcast, can with me as a lord and lady who's very glad they didn't go boom in Cersei's Little Reposure. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico. Hi guys, it's Nikki. And welcome to Across the Airwaves Thronecast. On this week's episode, Dan, Nikki, and I review the season six finale episode of Game of Thrones entitled The Winds of winter along with some listener feedback yeah but before we get into all of that we have some exciting game of thrones news about some great ratings for the show and a way that they called some fans over could tell that he's a cares Game of Thrones hits bonkers ratings numbers in Season 6. Game of Thrones keeps getting bigger and bigger. According to internal numbers, HBO's flagship series is averaging 23.3 million viewers per episode in Season 6, including first air, repeats, DVR, and streaming, according to the USA Today reports. That's up 15% over Season 5, the series' previous highest-rated season. Sunday night premiere ratings are also up 6% to 7.3 million viewers an episode. Overall, TV and on-demand viewers is up 4%, but the big story is that streaming viewership on HBO Go and HBO Now digital platforms is up a whopping 70% over last season, with 2.5 million streams per episode. Game of Thrones' closest competitor, The Walking Dead, averaged 19.4 million viewers in Live Plus 7 Nielsen ratings for its sixth season. It's not a perfect comparison, since HBO's numbers measure total views, while AMC's are only measuring TV and DVR the first week after. After the premiere and are based on the Nielsen model, so it's hard to say which is truly more popular. Regardless, this is great news for Game of Thrones and HBO. Because the brilliant thing about HBO Go is that you can literally watch it right right after the episode airs. Because I think it might be well the episode airs. Yeah, I think you can watch it as soon as it's live on television. So that's just, I think that's a brilliant model for them. Yeah, and the HBO Now is also available, and that's a standalone, so even if you haven't bought HBO, you can get right. that one. So that's, I mean, HBO knows how to do the streaming and they're doing it right for sure game of thrones is getting its own convention a new celebration of ice and fire has made its way to the game of thrones fandom the con of thrones will be all westeros all the time when it hits up nashville in 2017 announced and created by the folks at watchers on the wall the convention will take place over the 4th of july weekend starting june 30th 2017 in nashville tennessee according to the site's announcement this convention is led by diehard fans of the series no detail will go unnoticed the time is right to celebrate this phenomenon 
going on with people and new friends who love it most. I just hope there are enough tickets for everyone because Comic-Con always sells out and makes it very difficult to get tickets. So I hope there are enough for tickets for everybody who wants to go, but more than likely, I won't be heading to Nashville next 4th of July. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yeah, and with that, before Nikki showed the desire to run off and buy her play tickets, go to the <laughs> Game of Thrones con, get her costume ready. We're first going to just call her over from that by talking about this Game of Thrones that's on that, which is incredible. It's titled The Winds of Winter. In the season six finale, Tyrion counsels Daenerys on the upcoming campaign. Jon and Sansa discuss their future, and trials begin in King's Landing. Nico, I gotta say, you called it with the dragon fire being used to make the high barrel go boom. But even though we saw it coming from a mile away, I was still incredibly enthralled by the scene. Like, it totally took me by the hand. Like, almost like I didn't know it was coming. Because it was shot beautifully, with some excellent music cues and that score that they had during that sequence, which is brilliant. This, to me, was almost like watching the equivalent of the baptism scene at the end of the Todd Medieval Fire. Can I think this story's major Cuban villain has emerged? Tell us what you both thought of this scene that left a lot of that left a lot of people speechless about the best show on television. I I definitely did call this, but even so, there were developments I did not see coming, like Tommen, which we'll discuss right. next, and Cersei seizing the throne. I didn't see that coming. The actual visuals of the explosion were great, but to be honest, and maybe it was because it was at night, I thought the season two battle of of the Blackwater was more spectacular. But again, that is purely preference and probably due to the imagery of the green fire on the Blackwater and being nighttime. Despite knowing essentially what was coming, and not this time because I read it in a book, this was an amazing development and scene, so this was one of the one of the better developments in King's Landing in quite a few seasons. Yeah. Kadiki is still speechless. I knew something was coming and after the foreshadowing of with the wildfire, you know, discussion that Tyrion was having where he told the story of the, you know, the Mad King and his little stockpiles under the city. But it was still like amazing to watch because when we saw those, the little birds, you know, flitting around and our good friend, you know, douchey McDouchebag of the sparrows following that little boy, I was like, dude, don't even, don't go there. But then I was like, well, no, I want you to. And then him tra- crawling desperately to try to blow out the candles. I was like, nope, nope. And I was just like jumping up and down on my seat. It was just like so exciting. That evil look on that little boy's face. I was like, oh, this kid is awesome. But I was really shocked at how many people that they took out just in general on this episode. Yep. Yeah. It was like they're really thinning out the cast. They're like, we're, we got to get this down to the real players in the game. And we're going to take out everybody we don't who's not really necessary to the end game of thrones so i was really sad to see some of those people go right like loris and marjorie um i was i i love that they focused on you know how the high sparrow (laughs) died like he was the one we really see die it was the intercutting between what was going on there and what cersei was doing that i thought was just so beautifully done and just to see her getting ready and you think oh she's getting ready to go to the trial and whoever the costume designer was for that costume just nailed it i just like it was like she was wearing armor it was she was preparing for battle especially at the end when she changed it up a little bit but just to see her standing there just drinking her wine and watching everything that's going on and making sure that tommen didn't leave 
I was like, why is she sending the mountain into Tommen? I was like, oh my God, is she going to kill Tommen? And I was like, no, we're saying, no, no, she's protecting him. And then we're like, oh, something's going to happen at the Sept. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, something's going to happen, but we didn't know what. I was like, oh, she's going to, she's going to blow up everybody. And I was like, yep, I just, well, I thought it was just so epic. And you're right. It did remind me of the Godfather, of the baptism scene yeah. in the Godfather. Well, Ken, thank you for bringing up that costume because I thought that symbolized the transformation or that a transformation was coming for the character because she's in a very different place. And she covered herself completely. Right. It was like she was wearing armor. It was like, no. No, this is a new Cersei and she is taking what she wants and what she feels she's owed and just I just felt so bad watching all these people try to get out of the sept and the sparrows are like no no you can't leave I was like dude you don't know what's going on you want you want us out of here you want to get out of here and the high sparrows so his arrogance to me just in his like utter belief that he is in charge of everything dude you are so your comeuppance is coming and it is coming fast and you're just going to be torn apart. But, you know, I was not sad to see Sir Kevin Lannister go because I was like, well, you went against your family. But Lord Tyrell and Loras and Marjorie, I felt, and all those innocent people, I was like, it just broke my heart. But then it was just such a cool scene. Yeah. Especially after the humiliation that poor Loras had to go through. I was like, at least you could have let him and Marjorie out. But Marjorie, you know, had to die so we could have that scene with Tommen. Do you think it was a good symbol that Cersei is going down the path of the Mad King? The fact that she was willing to kill innocent people to get what you want. I think they were collateral damage and kings and queens and politicians know that collateral damage is a certainty in situations like this. And she did what she had to do. I don't think she's mad in that sense. I think she was getting her revenge on a lot of people. And if some innocent people got in the way, so be it. I'm glad all the that little bird got out before everything went boom. Yeah. I didn't want any of the kids to die and then but I think Cersei's just Cersei. I, I think this has been coming for a long time. We've seen hints of her final solution. Right. Now, why Tommen was watching death and why that happened. I think we all had our thoughts on how he was going to die. We thought he was going to get killed for just basically having no background. But I think suicide was the best way to make it sort of inadvertently Cersei's fault without breaking the mold of her head. Because what I mean by the death being her fault is that her ego decided to torture the accepted that wrong. She just she achieved her victory because she just had to keep pushing it a step further. You know, she almost got greedy. And I think what she should have done because gone right to her such to conquer him because I think if she went to him right after the explosion he probably wouldn't have jumped off that Christian would have come to him and the producers thought that as well they said that because the behind the throne take what's happening because I could have felt that way as well do you both agree with this observation? I don't Dan I think Tommen would have found a way regardless I, I think he could not bear what his mother had done he could not bear having to live without his queen he had lost everything but his mother in that explosion his new faith his belief in the, the goodness of people the innocence of his mother all of that was taken from him and all that he had left was this woman who took all of that away from him even had she gone directly to him or even been with him when it happened I think he would have eventually killed himself to be rid of her he figured his only escape from his mother's meddling was death and that was the only thing he could think of in that moment so she would have forestalled it but not prevented it does that make it Cersei's fault to a certain extent though yes and no I mean the reason reason he killed himself was to be rid of her so yes in that sense that was my interpretation yeah. is it it is her doings that caused him to want to kill himself but i mean anytime someone makes the choice to kill themselves it, it's their choice so the blame game right. can only go so far that's why i used the word inadvertently could describe it i think she 
the her actions are what led him to that state. But like Nico said, suicide is a choice, and it's usually made in incredibly strenuous and dire situations and everybody has their own personal reasons for it so not being in tom's mind you i i totally agree with nico i was like he he would have done it anyway he's a young boy and everything that he thought he knew and loved was taken away from him or was a lie and i don't think cersei saw that coming but it's almost poetic justice and it leaves her you know with the prophecy of that witch which was none of her three children would would live and this is you know i think the desperate act of a young boy who really who saw no way out yep. and his mother had just proven that she had no compunction against taking what she wanted and taking everything away and i think any hope that he had that she would be found innocent or that the sparrow was wrong high sparrow was wrong about her was just like nope my mother just did this and she did it to save herself and her actions speak louder than words yeah i agree with that I'm just, I'm glad that she kept him from going there. Yeah, me too. God, I was, like you guys said earlier, that God's a little sad to see a good character like Rodrigo Dahl could be explosion. But, you know, we had to sort of make the death of Tom and Captain to get Cersei to where she needed to be at the end of it. I think she would almost be in the way of Kerbal's beat through her. It was too much to put into the Cersei and Danny battle that's going to come. The political battle. I just wish we knew, like, what her plan had been. Like, she had something, she was planning something. Now we have one Tyrell left, and she didn't even know what the, what the real plan was. She just had an, a message from her that was basically I don't worry about me I know what I'm doing do you think that's going to be revealed nobody knew but Marjorie maybe Loras knew because she had to convince him to confess yeah but how did Galena know to go to Dorne or end up in Dorne she was invited after the fact yeah because she was invited by that. okay well I'm, I'm very interested to see where Diana Rick Gwenny Olena takes her story get how if she gets revenge I'm very interested to see where it goes I think we saw at the end how she's going to get her revenge yep right I, but I want to see an implemented you know because we all let Diana Rick yes he's got to get her revenge or up into something on Cersei God. I think it will it will happen. Yeah. yeah, you know, I was most surprised by Marjorie's death in the Great Set. I figured many would die, and it, it makes sense that Cersei would want Marjorie to be there at the time, since all of this started as a way to get rid of Marjorie's influence over Tommen. But still, it surprised me that it actually worked out that way. Marjorie was yeah. too smart, though, and would have escaped if the High Sparrow's fanaticism had not prevented her from leaving and saving a great many of the victims from being there when the explosion went off. I know some people have said that if she had sprinted out of there the moment she realized what was going on, she probably still would have gotten caught up in the explosion. And maybe she would have, but I don't know. I, I think she was smart enough that she could have gotten away. I'm just sad no more Natalie Dormer on Game of Thrones because I love her and she will be missed. Yeah, I, I will miss Natalie. I think she was just a fantastic part of the show. I think had she gotten out of the sept, I don't think she would have been able to outrun the flame or the wildfire, you know, because of how much destruction it caused. But it is, you know, it's possible I would have liked to see her try, but she was trying to appeal to, like, look, just let us go. And I don't know, maybe, you know, if she tried to get out earlier, she might have been forced to stay as well. Those sparrows were just not letting anyone through. They were just surrounding everybody and wouldn't let anybody out. So if she had tried to leave, I don't think she would have tried to leave without Loris. Right. Good again, I think it's too much for the story where it's going to go to the next you see. Yeah, at the end of the episode, I was watching, I watched it a couple times with different people, and I just like, they are really thinning the cast out for the final push. So it was like, to have that many people go at once, and to have something that epic happen, I was like, this is a really brilliant way to do that. Well, if you think about it, they have 13 episodes left, which is a 
sees it for a lot of shows. So you, you're kind of at Jurid Act 3. So you almost have to know the whole at this point. So that makes a lot of sense. But the one aspect, I'm just trying to figure out how they're going to fit into it, going to have enough time for to develop and work with, against the Ladies of Doric. Are they going to be another, going to be two Daenerys after the Cersei conflict is going on, or will they make an agreement with her like Danny was able to do with Yorah? Well, they already did make that agreement with her. That was the whole point of Varys being there to talk with Lady Elena in Dorne and get her to agree to terms with Daenerys just like Dorne had had just previously done. While we were all focused on Varys possibly going to make a deal with the Iron Islands and Euron, we completely forgot about Dorne and their ships. So yeah, Dorne apparently now Highgarden after Lady Olena's meeting with Varys and Dorne and the Iron Islands, well, at least Yara and Theon and all the men loyal to them, have already declared for Daenerys. And we can all assume Jon will do similar if it gets them dragons to fight the others uh, slash White Walkers. So I would just watch out for the lady in charge of the lady. She makes me nervous. Yeah, but she want she wants vengeance. She wants vengeance, and the prince was standing in the way, and so she took him out as well and said he was too weak to, to lead Dorne. It, sh- if there was a man, a prince of Dorne, yeah. or a princess of Dorne, who was strong enough to lead, she would have allowed them to lead, but there weren't any, in her opinion, who were strong enough. So that's why she seized power. It also appears that the Lannisters and Cersei and whichever houses remain loyal to King's Landing will be up against Danny when she lands in Westeros. And apparently the Freys, or at least Walter Frey and her, his two eldest sons, won't be around to help. But more on that later. When I saw, I was like, okay, this is a really great alliance. I was watching the scene in Dorne and I was like, Lady Elena could take her on. And I love this. He was like, what's your name? Barbara? It's like, you look like a little boy. <laughs> I was like, oh, I forgive my sister. Oh, do shut up. You have anything to say? No. <laughs> I, Diana Rigg, she's a goddess. But when Varys showed, when I saw the back of Varys's head, I was like, oh my God, this was what he went to do. He went to get them. And then that scene at the end, I was like, ah, he came back. <laughs> he saw him again, like he promised. But are the ladies of Dorne satisfied with just being underneath Daenerys? Nobody in Dorne really, you know, to my knowledge, has ever aspired to the Iron Throne, I think. They've been very, I'm not sure Nico if, can correct me on that, but they seem very content in their, in their world. And I think a lot of this is about revenge against Cersei. And I think, you know, the Tyrells no longer have anyone who could sit on the Iron Throne. Though if it turns out at the end it's Lady Olenna, I think that would be awesome. I think that the best way to get back at Cersei is to unite against her and to, you know, make Daenerys's uh, support great, so great that there's nothing she can do. Dorne has always been a separate sort of kingdom. It, it's always been like the North. It, it rules itself. It's a very inhospitable place. There are areas of Dorne that are lush and water gardens, but most of it is a desert. And with that, it's not a, a great place. It's much like the North is a, is a tundra. The area of Dorne is a desert. And so for the most part, as long as they are loyal and come when called, the Dornish have been left to themselves. And I, I think if they're given that opportunity to, to rule themselves again, they're going to jump at that opportunity. So they would be more than happy to align themselves with Daenerys if Daenerys is saying, I will allow you to rule yourself as long as you are loyal and come when needed. That is the best you can ever hope for as, uh, you know, unless you're going to try and kingdom yourself, that, that's the best opportunity to be a independent 
almost sovereign kingdom of yourself, and then you're just an ally to the big king or queen. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think they're very happy where they are and just not having any interference, and Daenerys can promise them that, and she will follow through. Yeah, it's the best deal they're going to get. So it's basically, if you follow my rules, I'll leave you alone, pretty much. No, it's like, you show loyalty to me, I show loyalty to you. Yeah. To work together. Daenerys has nothing to lose by offering Dorne this deal. I mean, honestly, she has nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so does Dorne. They have nothing to lose and everything to gain by this deal. Right. The other thing is, as Highgarden goes, the entire South goes. The the bannermen of Highgarden have been loyal for much like to the Starks for thousands of years. And how Highgarden goes, the South goes. So basically, the southern part, by locking up Dorne and Highgarden, Daenerys is, has conquered half of Westeros, the southern right. half of Westeros. If she can align with Jon Snow in the north, then essentially she has taken two-thirds of Westeros without ever fighting a battle. And the last bit is going to be the Riverlands and King's Landing, and that's going to be a two-sided war, essentially, although I don't ever see the north fighting in the, in the war for the Seven Kingdoms because they're going to be fighting a war on their own and they don't want to have to be fighting a two-sided war as well. Right, they're going to be a little bit busy and not be able to give up any soldiers and troops to go fight this war when, you know, essentially we all believe that Daenerys will let the North rule itself. The North are going to need the dragon to win fight. Yeah. That's what we think, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And this, if there is an alliance between these, uh, the North and with Daenerys, then I think she promised them that. Say, you know what, you, it, one, but they have to convince a lot of people that this threat is real. And the people in the South and in River, the Riverlands and in King's Landing, they don't know about White Walkers and White. So it's going to take a like. It's going to have to take, I think it's going to take something bad to happen for people to, for everyone to believe. But I think the North, I think will have some backup from Daenerys, but I think this is their battle. But yeah, well, he's been north of the, he's been to the wall. Right. Well, Tyrion knows that, yeah. Well, he's been to the wall. Right, so I think he'll say to Daenerys, this is a problem. I think Daenerys believes that says too. I don't think she has any question in her mind that the White Walkers don't exist. I disagree. Well, she has, I don't think she's ever heard of them. I mean, she's lived so far south. You don't think she believes? Yeah, and Tyrion teased that it was all a, you know, the, the, the only threat was the wildlings coming, and it was awful. A lot of, a lot of, old magic and and building a giant wall to keep a bunch of people out the rumor of white walkers and or the others in the books is just that a rumor to everyone who doesn't live in the north the north remembers and that's what we learned later in the episode is they remember what winter is coming means but the people in the south have short memories on that and so they don't know. And I don't think Tyrion's one trip to the wall gave him any reason to believe other than he saw a something when that man at, or former knight of the Night's Watch attacked Marma. Okay. Yeah. There's really, I mean, they, this is the first winter in a thousand years. The North remembers because, you know, they grew up with the stories. The, every, the rest of Westeros has lived. You know, it's, if they if they knew a thousand years ago, nobody is telling the stories anymore because had nothing to do with them. 
you know, it was the North's problem and nobody speaks of it. And probably there's no, the records of it are in Old Town at Citadel and when was the last time somebody looked at those? So yeah, the, the North is on its own here. No, Daenerys has no contact for White Walkers or Whites. She's never even been to the North. Because I thought they knew enough that the dragons eliminated the White Walkers. Go ahead, or had a purpose of that fight. So I just assume because they knew dragons existed that they believed White Walkers existed. We know that this coming. But they don't. But they don't know that. Okay. Because I just thought because of the, the prophecy of the dragon, the, the Mad King being paranoid, and all that stuff, that Daenerys knew about it. See, the Southerners think that that prophecy about the prince that was promised was about someone who's going to unite the world or mount the world, as the Dothraki believe, and is going to conquer the world. That's what they believe it is. They don't understand the idea of fighting against the White Walkers. They don't understand that the Aziz Azur, who was the first and, and the person who the prince that was promised is supposed to be a reincarnation of, they don't remember that his greatest victory was defeating the undead or the White Walkers or the others. That is what his purpose or his greatest victory was. They just think it's about conquering the world and bringing everyone into a single unified you know, it, it, it's the Alexander the Great. It's the Hitlers. It's the ev everybody wants to conquer the world. They want to rule the world. And they don't understand the importance of what the actual battle yeah. is. Right. It, it's become story. It's become legend. And the details fall away. And it just becomes about the, you know, the triumph. They've triumphed. They've, they've conquered. What did they conquer? Oh, nobody remembers. And maybe Sam will find something. Because, I mean, I just have to say that library... That was awesome. I just about, I just, it was the library of my dreams. I have dreamt about that library, about being in that library. Never having seen it before, I was like, this is the one I've always wanted to have in my house. And to have those sculptures. I think the only library that rivals it is the one in Doctor Who where we meet River Song. Yes. Oh, yes. Force of Dead. Where the, en yeah. the entire planet is a library. <laughs> That one was pretty epic, but this one had a beauty to it, and old, like only an old, like ancient library could, and there was no modern touches. I mean, obviously not, because we don't have that kind of stuff in this world. But and the the fixtures hanging from the ceilings, and you could see like there's the one there's the opening of Game of Thrones right there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You finally yeah. understand it. I just about, I just about cried. Actually, I did cry several times during this episode, but I actually cried when I saw that library. It was like when Belle walks into the Beast Library, Beauty and the Beast, times 20,000. It was that gorgeous. I think Sam felt that way, too. I did, I know when he started to tear up, I just was so proud of him, and I loved the little interaction with, uh, with the maester at Citadel where he's like, he's not moving his hand and he has to, like, Sam had to really lean in and get close to give him the, the letter from John. It was like... It felt like going to the DMV. It, it did. It, it, there's a show called Little Britain in the UK and it's brilliant. And there's a sketch where this woman just types on a computer. Computer says no. I just kept expecting the guy just go, computer says no. <laughs> I'm not dealing with you kind of thing. But I just, I was so proud of Sam and I was so happy for him and then it just then the it reinforced the fact he doesn't know what's going on up, up in the north anymore he doesn't know John died he doesn't know John's back he doesn't know there's battle you know it's just like Sam is 
where Sam needs to be. He's safe where he is with Gilly and the baby. Oh, that's good. I, I kind of felt dumb that I forgot to put that in there. So, that, so thank you for Right. But I'm glad we got it. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad we got it. I'm glad to know where we're going with that. That's the big thing for me. So I'm glad we got that. Could again, I want to see more research scenes or some kind of story come out and experience the library because that's just too cool and exciting to waste. God, speaking of things going up in the north, God's really surprised we got so much of Sansa and John in this episode. God really thought we would get maybe a seed with them and then we move on to next season because last week's episode got such a heavy focus on them. But I was glad the writers eliminated my concern of Sansa going Dark Phoenix, after the death of Ramsey, by John telling her they need to trust each other. Can I just think having a story where brother and sister are in contact with each other would work or get direction the show is going, with an act three, get bringing everything together. Good, basically, I think it needs to do that. So we have an epic conclusion where John's going to hit war. Do you both agree that this was the right way to go, and were you glad to clarify where Sansa is going to go in this episode? Yeah, I, I, I sort of said this last week, Dan, that I thought they would need to unite. I, I thought we were going to need Sansa to be the true-born yeah. heir and John as the tactical master and leader of men. But with the King in the North scene we will discuss later, that seems to be no longer the way things are going. It sort of puts Sansa aside once again, and I'm worried that this will give Littlefinger the in with her that he wants to convince her to be his queen. I think she's too smart for that, but that look he gave her after John was named King in the North has me worried. Yeah, yeah, um, it had me worried, but the little smirk that she had, to me, that scene was about what the scene between them at Tree, and she did want, she was not going to let that happen. She's like, I'm not, I'm not going there. And it was almost like Littlefinger going, well played. I see what you did there. Because really, there is no benefit except a personal one for him being kind of grossly in love with her because she's not the queen of the North. So what does she really bring him? Except for, you know, oh, he was in love with her mother. Oh, my God. So when when I saw the scene between John and Sansa, you know, I was just like, the the these two are really, truly have come together. They're going to do what they have to do. And I really don't think John expected anything other than I'm going to support my sister. I'm going to be here. We're going to fight the threat. Winter has come. Uh, finally, we've been hearing for years that winter is coming and winter is finally here. And I, I think that they have really forged their united front. And they, this we have to trust each other as we can't have any more secrets. But I think John completely understood why she did what she did. And I think grateful that she because he's like, you were right. We needed the Knight of the Veil. Uh, I don't think he, you know, wants to think about what that means for her as opposed to Littlefinger with Littlefinger. Because I think he worries about her. I think he doesn't want her owing this man who nobody trusts. And he doesn't want her to have made some kind of deal with the devil for her own sake. She's had enough to deal with. It's like why he brought up, you know, he sold you to the Boltons. Do you, you know, why? Why would he do that? But it, I think their love for each other as siblings and their respect for each other, that scene just showed that they were going to be okay and that he wanted her to rule. He wanted her to be the Queen of the North and the Warden of the North because I don't think he ever anticipated anything like that happening. He's a bastard for all intents and purposes, you know, and that could not, that could not have happened for him. And I don't think he ever aspired to it. In that regard, with John kind of wanting his sister not to owe Littlefinger anything, were you surprised that there wasn't a scene before between John and Littlefinger where he kind of threatened him or put him in his place a little bit? Because that's something that might be coming? No. I think Sansa needs to handle this herself. John is not her keeper. 
So unless Littlefinger yeah. continues to bother her after she tells him no, John would not and will not step in. I believe John realizes how politically and socially savvy Sansa really is, and he is not. So he will not butt in and ruin her plans or her machinations and will let her handle her own affairs. Especially after they had that agreement about no more secrets, I believe that John and Sansa will have a plan to deal with Littlefinger and any threat that comes their way. So I, I, I think they're also going to be ready for if he possibly has feelings that the Starks owe him something. So I, I think they're a united front, but John's not going to step out of line and, and do something that is outside his wheelhouse. He's going to let Sansa take care right. of her. She is a partner. You know, she is his partner. It's his sister, but also his partner in ruling because he needs somebody who's politically and socially savvy like Sansa. And she brings all of that to the table. She is little finger in woman form. <laughs> you know, I but mean, she's, she's, she's learned from the masters because she had to learn from the masters. She's almost the, the hand of the cake, to a certain extent. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because Tyrion had said he thought that was a more powerful position. It is. It's really, you're the voice in the king's ear. I totally agree with Nico. John will not interfere with Sansa. I mean, it's not who he is. I mean, he's never done that. He's never stepped in and tried to, like, take over or tried to do what he, you know, or, like, to impel his will on somebody else. He respects Sansa. She's his sister. He respects everything she is and everything she's become. He's not going to try to tell her he knows better or he's not going to try to run interference. He, she's a big girl. He knows that. He knows she can take care of herself. He has no illusion about that. It's you do what you got to do, girl, and I will do what I got to do. But we are two sides of a coin. I bring this. You bring that. We need to work together. I'm not going to get in your way. If you need me, I'm here. If you ask for my help, I'm here. But I trust you to do what's right. And I think that they will deal with Littlefinger in their way. I loved seeing them come together just like that when he just kissed her forehead. I was just like, oh my God. How many times in season one did she, like, was she awful to him? And now she sees his value and she respects it. And I just thought that was a huge, this whole journey this season with the two of them has been one of my favorite storylines. Yeah. Speaking of diplomatic decisions, I'm very thankful that Sir Davos confronting Melisandre did it end with John having to kill him because, you know, he, because Sir Davos was being unruly and just couldn't get past wanting revenge for Shereek. Um, I'm just glad it didn't give that way. Because do you both think that John handled the situation correctly by banishing her? I had thought this was because part tactical move to punish Melisandre but keep her alive in case through magic or her Knowledge is needed to get the right one. I'm glad that he didn't kill her because I think that she will possibly come to play later. But I also, at the same time, was like, they're getting rid of a lot of people. So this could be their way of getting her, ending her storyline. I thought that... I don't think it's over yet, though. Yeah, no. I think the pain that Sir Davos was feeling was so intense. He lost his child. I mean, that's what it was. That was a father in mourning. Even though Shireen wasn't his child. He was mourning the loss of a child and John understood his anger and didn't, that's, I think, why he didn't, why he let them kind of talk it out and he only had like two questions and he just kept, was like, I think the horror of what she had done, I don't know, the look on John's face when he found out when he was listening was just utter contempt and anger and disbelief because I mean who would do that to a little girl and I think that he also in my opinion kind of wanted to keep 
Sir Davos's hands clean. And he, this is somebody who I think will be the hand to the king. Yeah, I believe it was the only choice for John. He couldn't just outright kill her, being yeah. as she brought him back from the dead, and he owed her for that. And she was a powerful tool against the others and White Walkers, so killing her would have been wrong with the coming war. But he could not keep her either because of who he is and what he believes. Banishment with threat of execution was the only possible choice. And he knows he is losing a powerful ally, but honor and being true to himself is more important, especially if he hopes to lead men against the undead. It's the only choice he had. Agreed. And um, it was it was so just heartbreaking, the pain of both their feet. I will say Melisandre actually looked like she regretted what she'd done for a minute when she when he tossed her the stag she realized that he knew and i don't and when she talked about it there was there was like i don't it was an uncertainty that she did she didn't do the right thing she said i was wrong yeah. and i think she she was out of desperation yeah her whole laid back kind of very she was very quiet this season she was very she'd almost been humbled and i think having it shown to her like this you know st you know they're they're dead anyway they died they all died anyway it could have saved this little girl you did not have to do this and when that scene happened last night i almost felt like this was a desperate act of someone like who was just trying to do anything i felt like she was like this doesn't really have to happen she's just trying to to convince them that they need to do something and this is the most drastic thing that we think that they can do and let's make this what they do i don't part of me just never felt like the god that her god told her to do this it was like something a god yeah and i always that's why i just never trusted her after that i was like i don't think that your god told you to do this i think this is something that your god would tell you to do in a situation and you decided to convince stannis that this is what the god want that god wants you to do but i don't think it's really what she was told you if she has talked to a magical voice in the sky so and i just she was wrong and I think she felt guilt for the first time about Sherry because this is the first time she's really been hurt about her and seeing the evidence and that Sir Davos knows and she knows how close we're. So I'm, I'm glad she's not dead, but I'm glad that she's been banished because it's not something I, as much as I am grateful to the character for bringing John back, I can't forgive her for what she did to Sherry. Good to get we love Sir Davos too much to not see him be punished as well. Mm. I, I didn't want him doing something that was against character there. But it does free Melisandre up to meet up with some other characters who are heading north. So I do think that she is yeah. still going to be around and going to be a tool against the White Walkers. So it's a unfortunate loss for John in that she's a powerful ally, but I do think she'll still be a part of the battle. Agreed. I think she'll just it'll be at a different aspect. I agree too. Good. Speaking of the setup for the battle, I love the way the King of the North scene was executed for John because that young girl actress that plays the Mormons cleaner, she is fantastic. But I was a little nervous that John was the corner King of the North because it didn't work out so well for his brother. But I think John, because we've said many times, not really wanting to be the king, kind of in like a George Washington capacity with being president, will be the difference maker Can his rule succeed. Do you both agree with that? I loved that scene because the first thing that caught me was that John was sitting at the head table. After he had just told Melisandre, I used to sit over there, my family up here. And I like that she put into perspective for him what that really meant. It's like you had a family, you had feasts. You know, you were a part of it, even though you weren't up here. But now he's sitting at the head table where his father sat with his sister, having been accepted by the one sibling never accepted him as a start. All the others did. And to me, that whole scene was, especially with Lady Mormont standing up, it's like from the mouths of babes. 
is like the youngest one in the room is telling you all what you all need to know and what you know in your heart is true. She's putting it in a way that says, we are faithful, we are loyal, we are going to stand behind the King of the North. I don't think John expected that at all. The look on his face when they even were talking about him as the ruler of the North was like, this is, wait, what's going on here? He had this kind of, why why are the, he fully expected it was going to be Sansa. And even as he stood up and was looking at everybody, like saying King of the North, King of the North, and Sansa had that great smirk on her face when she did little here. He was like, was just standing there going, I, what is happening? Almost. I, I don't think he ever, he never aspired to that because he was never allowed to aspire to that. He never was allowed to hope for that. And that whole scene was John kind of being accepted. He was no longer the bastard. He was the king of the north. He was accepted for for his skill, not for his name. And I think that's how true leaders should be judged, is by what they bring, what they do, not just because they have the right last name or the right bloodline. And he is a st- and he is a Stark. So a Stark will is going to rule the north. But I I think he's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see him come to terms with the fact that he has been accepted and that they've chosen him and not Sansa. And Sansa was fine with it. You know, John has a tendency to have leadership thrust upon him. And he took his father, Ned Stark's words to heart about what it meant to be a true and noble leader. Sure, most of those lessons were meant for Rob, but Ned always treated John as a true-born son despite his origins, which we know why and we'll discuss later. So he was right there with Rob learning how to fight, how to lead, how to rule without ever having the expectation to actually be in a position to rule. I think that made all the difference in personality. The fact that John never expected to rule and rather always expected to follow, he knows the importance of what it means to be a good man that men want to follow. That is what will make the difference. John does not seek power, position, or glory. He only wants to win against the others so that he and his family and the North can survive. He knows what is coming, and that is all that matters. Yes, exactly. He he will do what he, he has to. And Nico's absolutely right. He knows what a good leader looks like his follow. He knows what, what worthy leaders follow. He knows what it's like follow. And I never thought about the fact, you know, during that scene where you know Ned really did train them, both he and Rob, to be leaders. But I, and I think Ned knew exactly what he was doing. I don't think he expected him to like be King North, but I think he wanted him to have the same lessons that Rob has. He didn't want him treated in a different and believed in both of them. It shows that Ned was a, a very good father to John. Well, we Like he gave him every opportunity to succeed. We knew from the very beginning that Ned was a good father to John. It was always talked about how John was different right. than most bastards. Ned had given him a place, had give, had all but declared him a true born. The only reason he, Catelyn, she was the one that gave John a hard time because it was, it was a daily reminder of her belief that Ned had betrayed her. Even if Ned had said that it was a result of a relationship that had happened before that they were betrothed because originally Catelyn was promised to Ned's older brother, but he was killed by the Mad King along with Ned's father. So that would have been an excuse for why he had betrayed Catelyn, although he never, he never did. Right. He just loved his sister because basically what he did. Yeah. And he, he protected his nephew as if he were his own. And, and that's the other reason that Ned always treated him as as if he were his own because he was his nephew and he couldn't he couldn't love him any less because he he didn't sire him he was family 
and he treated him as if he was family and taught him everything as if he was his own son because he he had ad- adopted him as his own son like you you would expect if if your sibling were killed and your nephew had nowhere else to go you would bring him into your family that's the way family works and yeah. so that's what he did and that's why adoption works too i mean it, even if they had just it wasn't a stark at all if he had found this you know if john was a foundling i think there's the love that from of adopt you know adopted kids are loved just as much as natural children and i really think that ned looked at, at john as his as his own because he raised him i mean he loved him and so it to me it's no different than a child who's adopted was how that was how ned loved him he loved him as a son and at the same time he was keeping a big secret but that secret was keeping john safe yeah my big question is could john have been killed for having the name targaryen john would have been killed for being the rightful heir he has a stronger claim than Daenerys. Okay. Daenerys is actually... But he's not the rightful heir. Yes. John was the really? prince's son. Prince's son outweighs... Because oh, Rhaegar, okay. you know, it, it yeah. it's like Harry is third in line for the throne now, or fourth in line for the throne now, because his father, then Prince William, and then Prince William's two kids, those two kids are before Harry. Now, if all of them were wiped out, Harry would take over. But, you know, so it's John, because he was Rhaegar's son, is ahead of Daenerys, which was Aerys' third, fourth child. But he could give it to Daenerys, right? Because he didn't want it. Because I don't think John wanted to to be there. Yeah. Well, Daenerys is, Daenerys is going to conquer and it will be hers by conquering rather than by making a claim and then how, well, maybe she, right. she would make a claim and hope that the houses would, uh, would agree to it and, and realize it. And, you know, the whole fact of none of Robert's kids were legitimate. I don't think that's where it's going to go. I think she's going to have to steal it away from Cersei. So it, it, she's going to win the throne herself and she won't need John to abdicate. Although I do believe he would. I, I don't think that that's needed, but she's going to see John and Stanley at trust. Great. I mean, if, she, if they find out the information, but if, if she finds out, okay, he's related to me, does that aspect of family that exists in this world come into play? No, he's a threat to her. She may be more willing to trust him, knowing that she is his, or he is her nephew, but I, I, I just don't know how that's all going to work. Right. It, it's going to come down to, I think it's going to come down to Tyrion telling her what kind of man Jon Snow is. And saying, we need him as an ally. He is an honorable man. If he tells you that he does not want to rule, that he just wants the North to be left alone, that is what he wants. And all he wants in return is you to come and help him. So I I think that it's going to come down to Tyrion. And I think the whole Tyrion and Sansa partnership that they had is going to play an important role because as I said, there's going to be Sir Davos as a possible hand of the king, but I think Sansa is going to be right there and just as important, if not officially given the title, she's going to be essentially the the hand to the king. I feel like Sir Davos is could be more like a kid's guard. I think he's just a trusted advisor. I think he's he's a guy who tells John exactly what's going on. Just like that's why Stannis loved Sir Davos so much as well because he he knew he could get a straight answer from Davos. He wasn't 
there was no political yeah. savviness to Davos. He is not going to tell the king what he wants to hear. He's going to tell the king how it yeah. is. And that is Davos's true worth is that he plays it straight and he doesn't care if it lands him in a cell below the, the king's throne room because he's going to tell him what he needs to hear and what he needs to hear when he needs to hear it, not what he wants to hear. Exactly. And that's what John wants. John is not a bullshit artist. John does a buy into it. John needs someone who's like him who tells it, look, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going down. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. He doesn't want things sugarcoated. He need, he, there is a respect between these two men, like unlike most relationships on this show. And I think that Sir Davos is a trust advisor if he doesn't become the official hand. I don't know if he could name Sansa the official hand, but I think the both of them, I think Sansa and Sir Davos and even L- Lady Mormont <laughs> are going to be very trusted advisors to John. I mean, John doesn't even want to be king, but again, like Nico said, he's ha- he has leadership thrust upon him at certain times, just when at very strange times. So I think that them coming together as, you know, he will have like a council, like a, his own small council almost, but not, you know, horrible. As for, I I think Daenerys and John will, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of tension. John will make it very clear to her, look, I don't want what you want. We want two different things. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't even want to go to King's Land, let alone like rule over the Seven Kingdom. I'm happy where I am. And I think she'll respect that. And she'll need to have her ally in the North. And I think that the two of them will come to an agreement. Family ties are one thing, but in this, in the Targaryen family, family ties don't really know a whole lot. I mean, look at what her brother was and, and what she she watched them do to him with no kind of emotion. Yeah, yeah. But he was an asshole, too. We all do that. Right. So, I mean, she doesn't really have this sense of family. She had, briefly with Khal Drogo, this sense of belonging and lo- being in love and, and having, you know, the potential family. But we know what happened to her family. But she doesn't really have a family. So I think that the idea of, oh, this is my nephew. And she never knew her brother. So, you know, she doesn't have that bond. So I think they'll become allies, but I don't think it'll be like a family relationship. Which is fine. They don't really need it. John has a sister. He has, you know, his sisters. He has brother. He he has a life. And, you know, now he's his family's a little bit bigger, but he's got bigger fish to fry at the moment and i totally forgot nico about sansa and Tyrion. like they would i want a scene between the two of them where they're just where they discuss what's what's gonna happen because they would and now how much she's grown up since she left him i mean he's gonna be mightily impressed with her i think and they are still married <laughs> like, honey i'm home because he's gonna be a joke about that right i think Tyrion genuinely loves her more so than probably he even realizes he'll realize that he loved the time when they were together because it it was it was probably one of the the best times and worst times and they got through it together even though they they didn't love each other in a, a marital sense they looked out for each other there was a respect between the two of them and i think even though she was like a little like put off by him because apparently in this world being a dwarf is not a, is bad and i think but i think there be there came to be a respect like you said they looked out for each other he never let anything bad happen to her he always protected her even though he had shay he had shay to you know to to get the romance out of his system because she was so young. I don't think he would have even tried with Sansa because he didn't want the marriage, but when it was forced upon him, he was going to protect her and he had no need to try to force her to consummate or he was just like, he realized he needed to be protecting and take care of her. He did feel that way about her. Why would you do that to a young girl? Do you think it's going to change now that she's older and that she couples this as savvy as an advisor and political mind that he has now? 
I don't think anybody is a smart Tyrion, personally. <laughs> I think now that she's more an equal, I I think that they're um, they would be a very formidable team, and I think they would respect each other. I don't think that they will continue their marriage. No, but I'm just saying, does that make her a worthy match to him? Yeah, he trusts John. He respects John, and I think the fact that John has chosen Sansa as his advisor, as an advisor to Tyrion, will speak a lot about how Sansa's grown up. And I think their first conversation that they have, he'll realize this is someone I can work with. Okay. I agree. Could they keep the marriage from a political standpoint? I don't think Sansa will ever go into a marriage that's not for love for now on. I think she has been sold. She's been traded. She's been humiliated all through marriage and the idea of finding a a true match and a true marriage is probably the only thing that interests her and it may not even have to be a highborn at this point she just i I don't think she can have another political marriage so no i don't believe that they will keep the marriage or it could be like a situation like with danny danny would marry for for political reasons but sansa won't danny married for political reasons before but she fell in love with Khal drogo and he with her Sansa, like Nico said, she's been through hell with marriage. Even though her marriage to Tyrion wasn't abusive, but it was forced upon. And while they liked each other as people, she deserves to fall in love. And now that she's not the Queen of the North, she can marry for love. She doesn't have to marry for political reasons. And John might. But I think being in the North, I think he has a little more freedom to do that if he wanted to marry and marry for love. He could. I just wish Lady Mormont was a little bit older because that is a partnership. <laughs> yes. That would be amazing. Can, it's like, John, can you wait like six years till she's 18? Because that is someone I want on my side. And she's, he's got her. And I think a marriage between those two houses would be really amazing. And I think that because of the respect the two have for each other, that there's a love that will grow. But she's 12. Okay, but Bran's around. Yeah, Bran is, he's devoted his life to the Three-Eyed Raven cause, so unlikely there. Okay, so very quickly, just to kind of blow through this real quick. When John finds out that he's a Targaryen, because Bran probably tells him that shit. When do you think I'll find out? Is it going to be something right at the beginning of the season? Because what's going to be his reaction? I feel like it's going to be negative at first because of what the Mad King has done. Because he's just been raised, carrying out terrible to Targaryen's all. But then I feel like he may change his tune when he meets Danny and may talk to Tyrion and concedes what she's all about. Because that the name Targaryen is not necessarily a bad thing right now, like it used to be. Yeah, I don't believe that Bran will make it to Winterfell. Okay. I believe that we will see them have a reunion between these brothers slash cousins. It'll be later in the season when Jon marches the northern armies to the Wall to fortify the Wall and repair the ruined Night's Watch castles. Remember, the Wall is 100 leagues long, which is 300 miles, and reaches over 700 feet and has 19 castles from the Frostfangs Mountains range in the west to the Bay of Seals in the east. Unfortunately, only three of those 19 castles are garrisoned at the beginning of the series. Castle Black near the middle, Shadow Tower near the mountains in the west, and East Watch by the Sea, which is aptly named because it's by the sea in the east at the Bay of Seals. Those are the only current occupied castles on the wall. The first course of action will need to be to rebuild and repair the remaining 16 castles and man them all. Another important defense will be to ride north of the abandoned castles and cut that forest back to a full half mile like it always had been 
been kept while they were garrisoned, but had been allowed over the last thousand years to grow back when the castles were abandoned. This will prevent the enemy from sneaking up on those castles, obviously. And all of these preparations are what needs to be made. And my guess is what John will do is he'll t- he'll start building up those places, and then he'll take and mix the Night's Watch and Stark Bannermen together to man the many castles together and give command to maybe the Northern Lords, but also the best of the Night's Watch. And in cases of Northern Lords commanding a castle, I think John will insist upon a Night's Watch as his second com- in command to help advise and teach the Northern Lords the ways of the wall, because defending the wall is an art, and it's a skill that has been learned by thousands and thousands of years of manning the wall. So the Night's Watch is the best at that, whereas the Northern Lords have been taught strategy and, you know, John was a great commander, Lord's commander, because he had been taught by Ned Stark, as we discussed earlier. I think that's where Bran will meet up with John, and by that point, Bran will probably keep the secret to himself and only tell John when they are alone and when John needs to know. So maybe when Daenerys comes on the scene, when there's an, an alliance proposed and Bran tells John because it'll help make the decision and that will be the only time. I, I don't think Bran will but, but John will fight now. I do believe so. Yeah. It'll just be strategic. I agree. I don't think it's something Bran will tell him right away. I don't think it's something John really needs to know right now. I mean, to know that you're not a bastard is one thing. I think that but he's never been really most people don't treat him like that. I mean, obviously, I mean the entire north has rallied behind him. I think one he does know, I think he will I think Bran will tell him why and it's the reason you you were never told because father was trying to protect you from Robert because Robert would have killed you. And that's what Lyanna says to whispers to Ned in that Tower of Joy is Robert finds out he'll kill him. And I do want to know what his real name is, though. She tells him, she tells Ned his name is, I thought she said Eddard. I thought she named him after, I was like, did she name him after Ned? But um, I think he'll always be Jon Snow. I don't think he'll take a Targaryen name or anything. I think he'll stay Jon Snow. Yeah, I I don't think that he's going to find out for quite a while, if ever. I mean, it might not be something that he needs to know. I think the fact that we know it is is what's important. Yeah, well, the big thing, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of Stark rise to power in this episode. Because I think just about everyone cheered with excitement when Arya pulled off her mask, Mission Impossible style, to kill Walder Frey. But the behind-the-scenes sequence after the episode may be a question of John Gantanza. Gargoyche sort of questioned Kirk tactics or what she has become because an assassin, thinking she needs to tell the time when they first see her. Also, I think Garia may have difficulty completing her list of revenge, which she probably runs into a very different hell. Because this is where you both see her story going next season is her brother and sister kind of be like, okay, what's happened to you? Are you okay? Gad, Kerr running into the hell again. Well, the hound's no longer on her list. Yeah. Yeah, she thinks dead, so it's out to lose. Well, she also took him off before she departed from him, and also the fact that she did not give him the okay. mercy was the same in her mind as killing him. So when and if she meets the new hound, there will be no need to kill him because he's no longer on the list. As for her killing Walter Frey, that was my favorite moment of this finale episode. <laughs> I suspected that the girl eyeing Jamie and serving Walter Frey alone at the end was a faceless man, and since the only one that would want Walter Frey dead and had the skills to do it was Arya, I guessed it had to be her and was right. Still, it was so satisfied when she pulled the mask off and told Walter Frey who she was and that she wanted him to know her name so he knew that a Stark was looking down on him as he died. That was brilliant. Great scene. 
And as you, for your concerns with Arya and her siblings, Dan, I, I don't think they will have an issue with her killing Walter Frey, of course, and his children the way that she did, nor do I think that they will have a problem with her killing others on her list, as long as they are not so. allies of the Starks and needed for the battle with the others and White Walkers. I think they'll realize that she became what she needed to be to survive, just like each of them did. So I think they'll accept her for who she is and who she's become come as long as it is you know helps their cause and helps the the way things are progressing and doesn't get in the way because jd on the list by the way no okay no cersei is i know that okay okay i did not guess that that was a, a faceless man because i was just like i was not even in that zone because i did not expect to see Arya in this episode i think that she will be accepted by her family they they just want their family together they just want the ones that are left to be safe i think they'll be so glad that she's okay and she's alive and they like nico said i think you know they'll accept it you know this is who you've become and the only people on the list are people who've wronged their family so not really a big like okay go for it i thought it was brilliant to have for her to have killed walder frey's sons the heirs and serve them to him i thought that was a little poetic justice and she like said john avenged the red wedding i think Arya had you know did her part as well to avenge the red wedding and i just loved the look on her face as he was dying i was like oh yes that's my girl yeah, I agree. Good. Speaking of other strong female characters stepping it up, I think it's up so very clearly. Could explain Nikki's point that Danny is meant to know man, because they're telling the Dario to stay behind. But in the follow-up scene, I just I really love the interaction between Tyrion and Daris. He just brings out this soft side of her that I think makes her look kind of like, ah, can you really want to be like Daenerys' friend? Could you see the side of her? Again, again, with the queen, you have to be strong. Confirm. But I hope that she's somehow able to use this kindness or this global nature she has to make people get behind her next season. I mean, I just this scene really struck me and sort of made me smile because you know, it reminded me of a friendship. Did I have a friend with mine? Because, yeah, I'd probably give ice to her just like her. So, from a real life standpoint, my own experience, I just thought this was beautifully executed in a way that I think many of us can relate to. So, did you both enjoy the friendship that has developed between Terry and Danny? It's just really fun to watch for me. It, it is, and I think that a good ruler also, you know, has to be strong, but I think a good ruler also also has a soft side and Daenerys the soft side is Tyrion and it's not even Dario it's the respect and admiration she has for this man who has come with no agenda to see her and just wants her you know just wants a good ruler for the Seven Kingdoms and he's thrown all of his considerable weight behind her the scene with Dario was was very hard because he does just absolutely adore her but it was also the right thing to do she can't take him with and she needs someone who she trusts to stay in Marine and keep the peace and and to ensure that it becomes a more democratic society, to let them choose their leaders. The fact that she didn't feel anything afterwards as she confessed to Tyrion, I thought was sad a little bit. You know, she goes, this is somebody who loves me, who I cared for. I thought I cared about, but I didn't feel anything. I was like, whoa, her head is really fully in this game. And she has to leave, like, affection, love, romantic ideas behind for now. She'll have to marry for political reasons at this point. And the scene with her and Tyrion where she, I asked for your counsel, not your sword. And he said, well, you have it. And then she gave him the hand. And I cried. And I think Tyrion choked up a little bit. 
little bit teary when, I mean, that is such a level of respect that she has for him because she does, I mean, they haven't known each other long. He was given the position of the hand before because family. This is something he's earned. She trusts him. She believes in him. He, she needs his support. She needs advice. And I think for the first time he feels important to somebody. I think for the first time feels like I, I'm needed for what I bring to the table. But she also, he talks to her like a person. He doesn't talk to her like a messiah. Like, he makes her laugh. She, you know, he tells it as it is. He can't console for crap. Yeah, exactly. And she, she's amused by it, to be honest. They have a wonderful banter between the two of them. And they kind of have from the start. I think it's, they have a chemistry. And I think the actors have the chemistry. And I think these characters have a chemistry. It's not a romantic one. It's one of friendship and one of respect. And I think that he respects her too much to blow smoke up her ass, my dad's say. But yeah, I, I, their relationship's great. It's, it, it, it's a very good part of the show, and I think we're going to get some really good stuff next season, cause especially when they have to face some challenges that they, they both have to face some demons, cause especially Tyrion. He's got some demons he's got to face that he ran away from. He's got to confront them again, because that's his horrible, horrible sister. Well, hopefully he'll find out that maybe he's not a Lannister. Yes. But he's still, he'd still be related to Jamie and Cersei by their mother, but... Right, and the other thing is I... I think he very much so cares for Jamie. Oh, God, yeah. Because Jamie cares for him. Because I think that's going to be a part of a lot of things. I think Jamie, I think Jamie's weakness is Cersei. But I think his other, if he had a, a strength, it's also his love for his brother. Aside from his military mind and his physical strength, I think. The love he has for his brother that defied his father, defies his sister. I think that's a really, that's a really important part of who Jamie is. And I think it got better after Brienne, but Jamie was always good to Tyrion. I mean, maybe they had sibling rivalry and all that, but I'm really, I really hope that it turns out that Tyrion is not an actual Lannister. Like Tyrell's told him, he wasn't his son. Yeah. Well, Jamie had some interesting scenes in this episode, because I agree with you both that he's a character that exists in a Garia, and I think he's the most human kind of all the characters, because he's not good or gore evil, because that's the way a lot of people live most of their lives. But after it's chatted with other things, I think it really eats at Jamie that he's considered as a hero, basically by committing an action that he considered was cowardly, but basically standing a man to the back and just defeating a long night. I think this is that this has fuels a lot of his evil decisions, getting some of his jealousy or hatred for the stars. But I'm wondering if it's possible for his story to finally get with him committing good action of honor, or somehow maybe getting to be a queen slayer in an honorable fashion, when Brienne get Tyrion may point out there that the woman he loved God could have been replaced by a psychopath who just wants to watch the world burn, so that she doesn't have her children. What do you both think of the possibility of this possibility? Could you think he realizes the woman he loves is God because she lost the very thing that makes Jamie in love with her? I don't believe that Jamie would ever betray or kill someone. Cersei. They are two parts of the same whole. They have been together since conception, and Jamie would rather die than see harm, let alone cause harm, to Cersei. I think if push came to shove, the best you can hope for, Dan, is that Jamie will abandon Cersei. But even that's unlikely. He loves her, for better or worse, psychopath or normal. He may not like her, may not like who she has become, or what she okay. has become, but he will always love her and will always protect her. So I do not see him turning, even for Brienne. The only exception I could possibly see is if he kills himself and her to stop her but it would only work if in killing her he also dies okay. because he would never live with hurting her exactly 
Yeah, I think Jamie is fully aware of who and what Cersei. I don't think that they, he has any illusions or romantic uh, fantasy. This who I really want to love. I think he loved her before they had children. He'll love her after. I don't think the children had. To. But I think he's scared of what could become after. I think he'd probably be scared of like a desperation in her that would come from losing all of her children. That last in that scene in Throne, he just looked like, oh crap, not this. It was like because I think when he walked in there, when he saw her take the Iron Throne, he realized Tom and dead, and now all bets are off. So he's bet he will stand by her. That's just how it is. It, I think it was she has nothing really to live for. All that energy she put in her children is now going to put rule, and she's not going to have. There's no. There's nothing to say. I can't let my children see me like this, or I have to do something for children. No, she. There are no children anymore. Her motivations are her own. So, and we all see what, especially in this episode, what she's capable of, and just expect more of the same. But it's like, oh crap, we have to go. Do I have to do this? Then, like, you know. Yeah. But is it going to be extremely difficult for Tyrion to get Jamie to go up against each other? Because I mean, I feel like that Tyrion has no other choice. Like he has to let Daenerys and everybody take Jamie and Cersei out. Right? There's no other option for him. I mean, I feel bad for him already. Right? And I... He'll try to convince. I think he'll try to convince Jamie. Oh yeah. I... But. It's no use. I, he also, I think, while he's trying to convince Jamie, will also know there's no point. There's he's not going to to go against Cersei in any way. But I have to try, and he might convince him on one level, but it's he's never going to turn against Cersei. Yeah, okay. Cause that's well, that's the kind of man Tyrion is. Greg, he has to, he has to try to give his brother every opportunity to, to do whatever he can to save. Cause I just believe that's in his character. Well, he also owes Jamie for his life for saving him, and a Lannister always pays his debts, so he has to give Jamie the same opportunity exactly, to get yeah. away as was given to him. Whether Jamie takes that opportunity or not is to be decided and seen, and. As we just discussed, I don't believe Jamie will. But I, I feel like once they get to Westeros, Katerian finds out Cersei's called authorities and we gotta do something about this. Just can't stay this way. Because especially when he finds out all the kids are dead. He's just like, oh crap, no. We gotta do something about this. Because he, he knows just, he knows how vegetable she could be based on her reaction to the death of Joffrey and how she just totally came after him. Because that's to be my last big question. I mean, the writers of the show said we should be very afraid of Cersei without the thing that humanized her, which was her children. So does this mean she's gonna be the ultimate evil queen to Danny? be the ultimate good thing? I mean, is she the ultimate human big bad of the season? I mean, obviously, could change in wardrobe, as I said earlier, get to an all-black dress, because it indicated that she's going to go all Michael from the Godfather self-destructor, now that the children are dead. But is it possible she is so devastated by the prophecy God, that haunted her coming true? I mean, is she going to see the White Walker invasion as a cleansing of Westeros, where she may try to come as direct their forces, get away where she believes she can get them to do their bidding, prompting John and Danny to realize she She's still been bad guy that needs to be stopped. I mean, I just feel like the show needs to narrow things down, get to two opposing forces for the conclusion to be fitting and work. And I feel like you need, like, with, with the Nazis and Kidiana Joe, you need to put a human face with her, a face that we can Can I think we need something to make this force still as relevant? Not just a bunch of characters that don't talk that we're fighting against. I think there needs to be a voice to that, or something like that. I think Cersei is batshit crazy for sure, yeah. Dan, but I don't think even she is that crazy. I love the enthusiasm for finding a theory, and I'll give you all the props in the world if it actually goes that way, but I don't believe Cersei is going to welcome the White Walkers as a means to cleanse Westeros, or to try and use them and direct them, or even try and make allies with the Night's King. I think Cersei is out for Cersei now. I She believes she has outmaneuvered everyone and has wrestled the Iron Throne for herself, which, short term, she has indeed. But Danny is coming, and she has dragons. Ironborn. Dornish. 
High Garden, and possibly the future, the Northerners, and pretty much everyone but the Lannisters and those loyals to them on her side, or she will soon enough. So I don't think, you know, Cersei is, she's short-sighted, always has been, and this is a short-sighted move to grab the Iron Throne while it's vacant, and it's going to be short-lived because Cersei Baratheon, first of her name, is going to have a seriously short tenure as Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. It's just not going to last long because she's not as smart as she thinks she is. But with that scene, the, the dragon's coming. You don't think she's going to try, she and Quibert are going to try, to do something to counteract them? Because I almost feel like it's, it's an emergence of a supervillain type of situation, where the superhero comes and they show up on the scene, because they have all these powers, and they're saving everybody, because then the supervillain emerges to counteract them. They're a product of this, you know, superpowered being. The only person who has a weapon, or in the books anyway, has a weapon that can combat the dragons right now is Euron. And so that is the only ally that Cersei can seek out is Euron and his weapon against the dragons. Now, I don't want to give away what that weapon is because they haven't announced it or shown any in- anything for it in the show. So I don't want to spoil anything for non-book readers. But in the books, they have talked about a weapon that can fight the dragons. Because it's been seen in the books. It's been talked about, but it has been seen or used in the books. In the books, it's been talked about and it hasn't been used it's been alluded to do you think that that because where it could go where you're on at Cersei combined forces because that just sounds like it's going to be pretty awesome with visual effects and stuff definitely a possibility because Euron has lost out on the partnership with Daenerys so his only option now would be to try to make an alliance with the new queen and possibly offer himself as a consort right. to the queen because I've just seen that's how they could top this season with a big battle. Because then, of course, the end of the series, the series finale, or the episode before the series finale, we all know it's going to be the big showdown, right? Where they're going to throw dragons in and everything, put the kitchen sink. <laughs> right. Right. Assuming all the dragons have survived and all of the people have survived to that point. But yeah, yeah, exactly. That that would actually be an interesting story arc for the enemy. Because I'd be intrigued to see where that could go. If Dorit Danny does lose one of the dragons in fight. Because I, I do think that would be a good challenge for her to overcome. That might be interesting watch. Yeah, I, I agree with what Nico said. Okay. Okay, I get excited about this show. You know, it's like, it's like where is this going? It's feel like it's with it all streamlining now. It's like you need the ultimate bad guy, you need to be the ultimate good guy, and let's go and find it. Like, Cause it's gonna, it's gonna be tough. Cause we need these two going at it. Cause I think we're gonna get some amazing moments from these actors now. Cause they do get out. Like, oh. One of the things I love about Game of Thrones is that the complexity of each character. There is nobody that is truly e- pure evil, except maybe Nighting. But he's not really, and there's no one who's 100% good. Is everybody is complex, everybody has shades to them, and the actors they've chosen have done a beautiful job with it. So I never expect, you know, the the atypical, you know, the stereotypical, you know, bad guys and good guys of this show. Everybody has levels, and they appeal on many levels. When I was watching this episode, I realized I was like, I wonder how much they told Kit Harrington about Jon Snow when they started, when they cast him. Because I know other actors like Alfie Allen, who plays Theon, and uh, the actor who played Ramsay, they both auditioned to play Jon, which I think would have been really weird. But I just wonder how much he was told about his character. I mean, we didn't have all the books at the time. Well, I think five had just books. Book five had just come out when the series started. But it makes me wonder just if, if Kit knew the trajectory of this character but then I think none of them read the books 
<laughs> because they don't want to know what happened to their characters. And I think Kit Harrington is so amazing in this role. He plays it, and I think as Peter Dinklage does, in a way that lets, like, they, I don't think they knew. I don't think they had any idea where their characters were going, and they kind of found out along with the rest of us. Because I think that there is a tendency in some actors to, to foreshadow, even if they don't intend to be doing it, to kind of play it differently if they know the end result. And the way Kit plays Jon Snow, it's almost like he's almost as shocked when these things happen to Jon as, as Jon is. Well, you might not know it until he watched the episode, because you think about it, because it's not like he was any of those because they probably filmed it somewhere else. I, I also did love how there was, like, Jon seemed to be wearing Ned's armor. Yeah, yeah. And then when you look at Cersei and that amazing outfit she was wearing, it kind of looked like something Tywin was similar to something Tywin wore. And then it made me remember something she said to Robert in season one, which was, I should wear the armor, you should wear the dress. It's just like now she's got her armor. It's like kind of a full circle. And that's one of the other things I love about this series is we do come full circle. Yeah, but with the armor is also, I thought, a uh, idea that she's concealed her heart's world. She's closed it off. The softer side of Cersei is gone. Yeah, you know, all the compassion in her is literally gone. Again, again, I think she's more evil than some her. I mean, you feel sorry for her that she crossed her children, but I feel like she's going rebel territory with the way she's going to react to it. Because to her, it's like, what is she going to do? So with that thought on her lines, of what's going to happen with Cersei next year, and how is everyone going to react to her claim to the Cutter Throne? We're going to get some of our Christner's reactions to last night's Cupix season finale. So good second way with some thoughts from our friends on Facebook. Justin Navarro wrote, Cersei is awesome. I'm so happy Arya killed Walder Frey. I got so excited when all the lords were declaring John their king. The R plus L equals J theory is confirmed, so John and Danny are gonna team up and wipe out the White Walkers. Ah, it was so good. Brandon Mickle said, What you think of Game of Thrones season ender? My boys thought it was just as good as the last episode. My oldest said the pattern is for episode 9 to be awesome and 10 to be a little lackluster. But damn Cersei igniting the wild fire i was rooting for marjorie to get out of there but the devastation was far too great even had she sprinted from the chamber at the point she realized shit was about to go down megan anderson said just finished it wowza now have to wait a year our friend jeff jania said probably the best episode to date it was hard to top the battle of the bastards but they did it slick move on cersei's part to use the dragon fire but what a bitch she is going to be a very formidable opponent for daenerys i was hoping that jamie was going to kill walder frey but but even better that Arya did and served him his own sons. Was hoping to get a final look at the Hound and I'm looking forward to more of his storyline. Yes, he's a piece of shit, but he's a piece of shit you root for and not feel too bad about doing so. I am hoping for an eventual alliance between Daenerys and the Starks, but with Theon involved, it might be a little tense. It would be awesome for Daenerys and Jon to defeat Cersei with help from the King slash Queen Slayer Jaime and then take on the White Walkers. I don't think the White Walkers will fare well against Dragonfire. Then John and Daenerys will marry and rule the Seven Kingdoms. Maybe the Red Witch will hook up the Hound. That might prove interesting. Almost forgot about Bran. He could also make for a good match for Daenerys. I just hope that she doesn't turn mad like her father. This is one show where I hate the long breaks between seasons. We also got an email from our friend Vicky Peer who said, Hi, here are my thoughts. I was glad that Sansa turned down Littlefinger's proposal of love and I'm excited slash nervous to see what his next steps will be. Will he continue to try and win and revert back to his trickery? 
history, Lady Mormont is in. She was introduced out of nowhere and has quickly become one of my favorites. Arya killing Old Man Frey was awesome. Now she just has to kill evil Cersei and her list will be complete. Seeing Bran's vision of the Tower of Joy, which confirmed the R plus L equals J theory, Rhaegar plus Lyanna equals John was so cool. And finally, while it seems a bit out of place, I was very happy to see Sam get to the Citadel. Oh, and P.S. I wish we had gotten an update on Brienne of Tarth. She rules. Vicky. Yeah, I, I was like, where's, where's Brienne? <laughs> Why is it taking her this long to get to Winterfell? It didn't take Arya very long to get to River Run. Well, they also don't have horses. They escaped on the boat, and the boat in the river goes the wrong way, so they have to get off and find some horses and get back north. Patrick, we're going to walk. We're going to turn around. Well, at least it's not just Gendry and them f- rowing forever. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Always a lot to discuss when talking about Game of Thrones. Brilliant performances, incredible special effects, impressive writing, action, spend drama, comedy. There's so much to take in that it's very easy to forget about something when discussing episodes. Something like this episode exceeded all of my wildest expectations. Revenge, revelation, and the most brutal annihilation of the show's cast since the Red Wedding. It all collided into one best episodes yet. I honestly don't even know where to begin. The sheer quantity of incredible moments in the winds of winter have left me stunned. We learned so much tonight. So much happened. Indeed, fittingly for the longest episode of Game of Thrones ever, more known character died in this episode than any previous one. The bulk of the casualties came King's Landing, where Cersei, Lannister's magic wildfire bomb, wiped out all of her rivals within the city, though the fallout ended up costing her her son as well. Marjorie apparently failed to imagine just how far Cersei would go to save her own skin until it was too late. As Hyrells, the Sparrows, and various notables gathered in the high Set for Cersei's trial. The Queen Mother detonated a cast of magic wildfire from the, that the Mad King had hidden beneath the city long ago. As it happens so much at Game of Thrones, your reasonableness couldn't, in the end, defeat vicious, ruthlessness, and cruelty. However, we're reminded that the most horrible Tyrell of all, Marjorie's grandmother, Lady Olana, parted the capital a few episodes back, and now she's plotting with the Hand Snakes of Dorne and Varys out to get their revenge. Cersei is the author of her own prophets. The witch told her that she would lose all of her children but it was Cersei who ultimately provoked Tommen's death. Boy King, overwhelmed by the monstrosity of his mother's crime, undoubtedly racked with his guilt at his own part in it, and grieving at the loss of his wife, sets down his crown and steps out the window. Compared to her grief at the loss of Joffrey and Marcella, she treated Tommen's death as the price of doing business. Tired of trying to shape events as the person behind the person, be it her husband or her son, she finally took the power she created by force and dared anyone to stop her. Long may she reign. In the great hall of Winterfell, remaining great vassals of the North are properly ashamed. Various houses and wildlings all argue over what to do next as the wonderful Lady Mormont cuts through all of the bickering and chastises the Lords of Mandalay and Glover for her shameful refusal to help Jon Snow. She tells the onlooker that she doesn't care that if Jon Snow the bastard or not. He's her king of the North. God, I love that little girl. She officially is my new favorite character in the show. Air Island is lucky to have her. Unfortunately for Jon, not everyone in the room was entirely enthusiastic about following him glory. Littlefinger outright admitted his desire to claim the crown for himself. Sansa right along with it. Since Sansa's already had more than her share of creepy suitors over the past six seasons that offer didn't go down so well. 
but it's inarguable that spouses are heirs. Sansa and John are both in a fairly tenacious position politically right now. Jamie, who arrived in King's Landing, is in time to see Cersei claim the Iron Throne in her sinister leather dress, looking like a cross between Maleficent and David Bowie. He did not look happy to see that his beloved sister has claimed the throne for herself. King Slayer, who has seen poor in this season between his twisted devotion to her and nobler impulse, seemed to be wondering if he might one day be called upon to be the queen's heir. After all, Cersei just did a version of what Jamie reportedly killed Mad King Aerys in order to prevent. I predict that Jamie will start to abandon Cersei next season and to start becoming the good man that lives inside him, unshackled from his wicked, ruthless sister, and maybe then he and Brienne can possibly become the power couple that we all hoped they would. And we finally left Marine, well, all except Dario, who's sticking around to keep the peace in the city as well as rebranded Bay of Dragon. Forget Marine, he said in a way, speaking for all of us. Danny's long awaited departure back by a growing list of powerful allies. I have a bunch of little clip-outs that I wanted to address too. It was a little weird to include Sam in this episode. It felt unnecessary, like something that would fit nicely in the next season. The library at the Citadel was really cool, however, and it was cool to see the White Ravens walking out of the tower signaling the onset of winter. I'm still a little uncertain how to feel about the show killing off so many Tyrells at once. That sort of brutality is usually saved for the stars. I feel like a lot of good politicking has been cut short. Marjorie had a plan, was playing her own game with the High Sparrow, and now it's all just suddenly done and over. I'm a little surprised and a tiny bit sad that we didn't see the Night King or the White Walkers at all. I thought for sure we'd see them crest a mound and stare coldly at the wall, all ominous and super evil. Arya Stark made her Westeros reappearance, killing the wretched Walder Frey in the process. She confirmed a few things. She is back on Kill List B, which could only mean trouble for a certain freshly minted queen. Also, though she ditched the faceless men, she apparently retained the face-shifting tricks. Finally, the body-prepping skill picked up at the House of Black White translate nicely to the kitchen. Davos confronted Melisandre over her immolation of Sheeran and asked Jon so if he could kill her and beat it and don't come back, Jon told her, but I think she'll be back in the end. The walk has magic in it that keeps Ted from crossing it. Uncle Benjamin told Bran that seems important. There was a macabre symmetry in Tom and plummeting out the window. Interesting, considering everything that has resulted from his father shoving Bran out the window in the pilot. Missing in action in this episode was Dora, presumably stonier these days, and let's manage to crack grayscale code. One of my first thoughts from the episode was, wow, that must have broke the internet. That's it, thanks. Okay, that's all I really quick. Quick thank Joshua Mercury, our friend of the podcast, our social media consultant, as well as co-host on the Gravelverse podcast, for sending us his questions on Game of Thrones every week. Okay, we don't read them all because they're very similar to a lot of the points we go through for the script, but I can appreciate it taking the time to send us that because can always help me formulate my script for the week of what we discuss. It can really help us a great deal with doing that and giving you guys a great up. Thank you, Josh, for taking the time to do that every week. We know you're a very busy guy and we very very much so appreciate it. So with that, well, we're going to have Nico share what's happening, I guess, cut our next episode with a PTG place about a year from now. But we have other stuff going on. Yeah, this wraps our season six reviews of Game of Thrones. Dan, Nikki, and I will return in the spring of 2017 to review season seven of Game of Thrones. But for now, we're going to roll our pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs. Get the iTunes Store, get Google Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at Marvelverse 
marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel comics, related TV shows, and movies. Again, we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, and the Mixed Radio Station, code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the podcast box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace, and the Windows Marketplace, and a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there, it's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773 809 3363. Again, that's 773 809 3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line, if you are sending us listener feedback you want us to read, got the air. Come and also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Alright, so I guess until next year for this podcast, for other ATA podcast hosts, Lou Kim, Michael J. Potty, James Heffel, Steve Nostro, and Joshua Mercury, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstack. I'm Nikki Amy. Okay, until our next episode, we will catch you on the airwaves. Talk to you guys in 2017. See ya. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.